Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Hey, it's an honor to have my good friend Ronald Osborne with us today. Hey, Ron. Hey, how's it going? It's going great, and I'm so glad that you're talking with Adventist Voices. Um, We're going to do something kind of fun um, for the audience, I hope, which will be to talk about some of our favorite things to read and watch. And um, I'm just curious in general why you... um, kind of suggested this topic and um, why you enjoy uh, reading and watching films. Well, you know, Alex, you had initially asked me to do some kind of interview and I said, well, let's just talk about something fun. I don't want to talk about myself, but then you kind of made it about uh, autobiography anyhow by saying, talk about your childhood and what you read when you were a kid. So I guess that's what we'll do. But yeah, well, um, who who doesn't love you? movies and, and listen to books and good movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, I should, let's give a little background here because I do believe that autobiography kind of tells us about who a person is. And I, uh, think about the times that we first, uh, kind of hung out. Um, one of which was walking around Washington DC, um, almost 20 years ago, which is kind of crazy, just kind of talking about ideas. I was an undergrad at the time, and I think you were just starting a graduate program. Um, And uh, I think our friendship has been a lot about books and films and ideas and rambling conversations. So yeah, let's uh, jump right in. And maybe um, I thought one of the first things to do would be to talk about your three favorite books of the Bible. Three favorite books of the Bible. So that was a tough one for me, actually. I, I, I haven't actually thought about the books of the Bible in terms of um, favorites. But having said that, I will give you at least one, which is kind of strange or will seem strange maybe to some people. But for some reason, I've always loved the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, if, if you have a, a, a depressive and slightly melancholic personality. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's something for me oddly comforting in, in hearing <laughs> that life is meaningless. Um, somehow, yeah, you know, it's the, the nihilistic yeah. book. Um, I don't know. I think, I think though that the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible in particular, I've always kind of gravitated towards. And these days when I pick up the Bible to read, I often find myself flipping to, uh, the Psalms actually, which Mm, when I was younger, I didn't care for much at all. I, I kind of thought they were rather boring, but now for some reason, when I read the Psalms, they really oftentimes speak to me at a very deep existential level. Um, and I think that one of the things I love about the Psalms in addition to the book of Ecclesiastes is the kind of realism about the shadow side, we might say of human existence, you know, the, the brutal honesty that life sometimes doesn't seem to make a lot of sense or, um, or add up. And, 
in a paradoxical way, I find it immensely encouraging to my spiritual life to find that kind of honesty embedded right in the midst of scripture. That's great. I had a, a friend whose uh, husband passed away and she turned to the Psalms and, in a really beautiful way and, and talked about it um, regularly for a while. Oh, yeah. So what's your third one? Oh, wait, that counts as only one? I thought, uh, okay, so, so, yeah, I guess I said Psalms and Ecclesiastes. Psalms. Yeah. Um, huh. My third one. Um, you, you know, this This will probably sound a little bit funny, but um, I'm going to say the book of Genesis Uh but I kind of wonder if the reason for that is at various points in my life, I've sat down and said, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. And invariably, I only make it through about Genesis. <laughs> so, so it's probably the book I'm, you know, I have a certain amount of familiarity with because I just keep rereading it on this failed quest to read the whole Bible all the way through, right? Um, but beyond that, it's it's a fantastic book as well for uh, some, maybe similar reasons. It's so honest about the human condition. And, of course, the first 11 chapters of the book are chapters that I've wrestled with a lot through my adult life, thinking about creation and various questions like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go with Genesis. Yeah. You know, uh- I will um, jump in with my three here briefly. And one of them um, is Genesis as well. I, I just think it kind of sets up um, the story. Well, obviously, but it, um, uh, you know, I've turned to it quite a bit, not for theological um, kind of reflection um, as much as, it was something that I used to listen to on tape while playing Legos growing mm. up. And so the stories that it tells, um, especially the kind of um, the, the actually the patriarchal history has always been a part of me, which makes me sound uh, weird. And um, I uh, love it. I really enjoy the stories that it tells um, just as uh, part of it's kind of just woven into my kind of growing up Adventist um, life. Um, So I love that. You know, I recently watched a film that is the entire um, book of John acted and spoken. Uh, It's about a three plus hour film. And so I just totally um, found new meaning in the book of John and actually I like Ecclesiastes too. So those are my yeah. three. And I think, you know, we were talking about this the other day, actually um, there's something powerful about hearing uh, any of these books, I think read through at length, you know, like when so many of our uh, religious settings use selectively little verses or snippets of scripture, but you don't get the kind of grand sweep of things. Uh, and so, yeah, you were telling me about that film on John listening to the whole book being performed, which is great. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I was there with a church audience leading this discussion, and um, it was incredible to see how many people were moved by it. There was quite a bit of emotion afterward in our conversation. You know, the book of John, though, if I may say, is of all the Gospels, the one that I've at times found the most kind of discomforting and maybe that's good. Maybe being discomforted is a good thing, but you know, there are two, a couple things about it that have always unnerved me. One is of course, it's the gospel that has the quote unquote highest Christology, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's my modern sensibilities that, that wrestle with that um, a little bit. But, uh, but the other thing that's disconcerting about John is I think it has the most polemical language referring to the Jews yeah. Although, although, um, are you familiar with David Bentley Hart's new translation of the New Testament? No. So Hart, you know, he's uh, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox theologian. He recently published a, a translation of the New Testament. It was published by Yale University Press. And he, he makes an interesting point in there, which is that every time you see the word Jews in English translations of the New Testament, the term or the word could actually be translated Judeans. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because what he thinks is going on there is it's actually a polemic about it's the conflict between the Judeans versus the Galileans. Sure. Yeah, okay. which makes a whole lot more sense, right? Because Jesus was a Jew, his disciples were Jews, all the authors of the New Testament were Jews. So why on earth would they be polemicizing against the Jews? You know, that's not what it's about. It's according to Hart, it's this conflict between essentially the um, the center and the periphery of power in Jewish society, and uh, so it's this this movement that's coming from the hinterlands, from Galilee, and kind of making its way into to Jerusalem and challenging the, the authorities of Judea, you know, you know, um, have you read Reza Aslan's book? Zealot? No, I haven't. I, is it, is it a good one? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very popularized, um, but, uh, I think still worthwhile, um, contextualizing of the Jesus story within yeah. You know, the first century and um, and puts it in the context of all the zealots who are out there, not the political group, but the, the sort of passionate, prophetic um, uh, kind of subculture within uh, Judaism that was uh, responding to the sociopolitical times. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of makes that point um, especially about the James Paul split um, post, you know, Jesus uh, within yeah. um, the followers of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and he, you know, his art, he, he kind of translates Jesus's occupation as not a carpenter, which is kind of a, to us sounds like a skilled tradesperson mm-hmm. as a carpenter. I, I agree with that, but more as like a day laborer, which would have connected to maybe that kind of Galilean, you know, not cosmopolitan culture that, that his followers were a part of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the, it's interesting tradition is, as Jesus was a carpenter, I think though the new Testament word, I'm not a, a Greek scholar, but, um, I think the word that's actually used is tecton, which basically just means somebody who works with his hands. Yeah. 
but yeah, uh, great. We're already into heresy and we're only 11 minutes in. <laughs> well, I have to say the, you know, I disagree with um, Reza Aplin's thesis, not having read the book. So I should probably reserve judgment until I read it. But I know, I know what he's arguing. I know he's arguing that, um, that basically Jesus was a zealot um, uh, or would have identified with that kind of radical and even violent wing of, of resistance to the Roman empire. And of course, I'm pretty committed to John Howard Yoder and Stanley Hauerwas and those guys who uh, argue for the nonviolent reading of Jesus. But that's not to say he wasn't a radical. Um, but was he was he a violent zealot? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, stay tuned because uh, our our. Two things I'll just connect to this. One, David Bentley Hart, uh, just a quick advertisement for anyone who's going to be at the American Academy of Religion meetings and specifically Society of Adventist Philosophers. We had our friend Zane Yee on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he um, uh, talked about David Bentley Hart being a keynote speaker for the Society of Adventist Philosophers. So um, thanks for bringing him up, Ron. And then the other point is that we're going to be um, debuting a film um, produced by some Adventists, but um, it has David Bentley Hart in it and Diana Butler Bass and Sigve Tonstad. Um, and we're going to kind of show that film low key um, at our upcoming conference in Orlando, Florida, on the campus of Advent Health University. Register for that. Um, we don't do regular advertising on this, but uh, we are trying to plug this conference. So I have done my duty. Now let's talk about some speaking of films. Let's jump into a couple of films. It's summertime. Um, let's talk about maybe some films you've seen this year. And we can read that broadly into parts of last year as well, if there's any standouts, but what are your top three films in the last year or so? Last year or so, you know, actually, to be honest, more recently, I've been watching television series more than, uh, more than films. And I saw a great series recently, which I highly recommend, which was, uh, Chernobyl on HBO. Um, have you seen it? No, it's one of those that I keep wanting to. Yeah, it's a fantastic uh, series. It's five five episodes, so it's a manageable length. And it's depicting, of course, the nuclear disaster uh, in the s- former Soviet Union and um, all of the uh, sacrifices, incredible sacrifices that people made to try to contain that and uh, prevent the calamity from becoming you know, even more apocalyptic than it already was. Um, but it's a powerful film and really, really depicts, I think in a strong way, the, uh, the, 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 the fact that there are just objective realities (laughs) that smack up against human beings, no matter how we might try to, um, bend reality to suit our own interests or things like that. Because of course the, the government wanted to just cover it up and suppress it and in various ways, minimize it. But uh, nevertheless, that radioactive material was wreaking its havoc. And eventually there was nothing anyone could do to deny it, I guess. 
great. I um, now want to see it even more. Can you, is there like a scene or a moment in that series that stands out as really representing that or showing, you know, a kind of, um, you know, a lasting um, uh, uh, theme from it? For yeah, you? sure. There were, I mean, there are a few, there are a few powerful scenes. One of, one of the powerful ones comes actually in the very last episode near the very end of the entire series where, the lead character, a, a, a nuclear scientist who has been trying desperately to um, get the truth out, basically gives a, a kind of a, um, a statement on the nature of truth. And I won't even try to paraphrase it, but, uh, but it's well worth watching the entire series just to get to his, his final kind of statement on truth. Um, but in terms of like just visceral, powerful visual filmmaking, um, you know, one of the standout scenes I think was where you have, uh, this group of these three men who basically are asked to go and enter into this utterly toxic radioactive, uh, blown up nuclear reactor in order to do something to hopefully prevent it from getting worse. And they know with almost complete certainty that, well, they know that they are putting their lives at tremendous risk going into this um, toxic zone. And they, they make the decision to go ahead and, and enter and do that. And it's eerie and it's, uh, you know, really, powerful seeing these individuals who are just uh, essentially sacrificing themselves for a greater good. That's great. You know, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in and talk about a film that um, I just saw this weekend. Oh yeah. That is on a similar theme truth. It's called the farewell. It has the actress uh, who goes by the name Aquafina. Oh yes. (laughs) Uh, are we allowed on your show to talk about some of her music videos? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) People can look those up. She's, she's incredibly talented. And, um, this is very different than her other sort of comedic pop culture. I think she was in the film crazy rich Asians. Mm -hmm. Um, but this film, uh, I recommend to everyone. Um, it is very, um, emotional and it's it starts out the first kind of words you see is it's based on an actual lie and the setup is that um, she's a you know youngster living in New York and she has a, a friendly kind of phone relationship with her grandmother who lives in China and um, she uh, the Aquafina character grew up mostly in the U S with, you know, first generation immigrant parents. And, um, they, uh, everyone knows that the grandmother has been diagnosed with cancer, but no one is going to tell her. And they go to a pretty wild lengths, including at one time doctoring a doctor's report, um, to keep the grandmother from knowing that she's terminally ill. They, create a wedding basically as a reason for everyone to return to China and um, meet up and spend, um, you know, several days together to really 
say goodbye to the grandmother, but of course no one can actually tell her what's going on. And so it's just this beautiful moment where this person who's, you know, mostly lived in America has sort of, um, you know, brings the American individualist, we must tell them the truth by telling her the truth, we free ourselves. And, and she has to fight up against her family who says, no, that's actually very selfish of you. We need to protect her from this. And um, we bear, it's our duty to bear the truth and lie for the good of something bigger than ourselves. Mm. Wow. Anyway, yeah. it's, uh, it's a beautiful uh, film and it's actually got some nice lighthearted moments as well, but um, it did bring a few tears to my eyes. It's interesting that we're both uh, thinking about truth and maybe it's uh, maybe it has something to do with our current historical moment where truth is uh, seems to be uh, what, how can we put it? <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, it seems to be gone. It seems to be um, a commodity that is that is uh, pliable or something that's. Uh, but well. As an anti-foundationalist, I would say that it's always that way. We just have structured our realities as a way of protecting us from the the, the flux. Yeah. Well, as a foundationalist, real realist, I would just say you're wrong. But, <laughs> but who's to really say, Alex? Is there truth? Is one of us right? Is one of us wrong? Is found is anti-foundationalism true? Do you, do you <laughs> okay, well, we'll we'll talk about that another time. Yes. Um, well, let's talk about since my uh, thing of top three is um, also in flux. Let's jump over to some uh, books. What have you been reading lately that stands out for you? Um, huh. Well, I've been reading philosophy. Actually, I've been reading. Um, I've, I've been reading a book by this Catholic philosopher named Edward Fesser called Five Proofs for the Existence of God. Um, and I'm not mentioning it because I'm recommending it per se, although it's a very clear, well-written book. But uh, you asked what I'm, I've been reading recently, and that, that's my answer. Um, I've also been reading a novel by this French novelist, Michel Holbeck. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Yeah. Okay. Who's rather disturbing, um, and I the verdict is still out on whether I'll read another book by him. But there it is. Well, let's talk about some top three. What were some like um, kind of key like the top three books you read? Say um, when you were in college. Yeah. Uh, so so the top. Well, I'll just say my favorite book of all time, the, the book that has maybe had the most profound influence on me, is uh, the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, or uh, some translations would say actually the Karamazov Brothers. Uh, I read that book in college with one of one of my mentors, Audley Stafford, recommended it, and therefore I read it. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it really was uh, a profoundly moving experience. The first time I read it, even though I really didn't understand what I was reading at all, I just knew that it somehow resonated with me. Um, and I've probably read it all the way through maybe five or six times uh, since. And 
um, it's that must be why we uh, enjoy uh, talking, even though we come from different uh, philosophical, ideological um, foundations. Because I have read it three times mm. and taught it a few times to uh, students as well, and uh, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about Dostoevsky is, you know, of course, many of your listeners will be familiar with the book and those who aren't. Um, just by way of summary, it's a book that tells it's a murder story. It's a murder mystery, but it involves uh, revolves around the lives of these three brothers who are these kind of archetypal characters. One of the brothers, uh, Dimitri, the, who's the oldest brother, he's kind of like somebody who lives for his senses. You know, he's uh, like a guy who lives for wine, women and song. Um, the middle brother, Ivan, is an atheist intellectual and the youngest brother Alyosha is in training to become a monk. So he's kind of a religious saint. And so these three characters, you know, I think if anyone's honest, they'll discover elements of Dmitri, Ivan and Alyosha in themselves to some degree or another. Right. But the great thing about Dostoevsky as a writer is he's, he depicts the lives of each of these three uh, brothers in a way that is profoundly compelling and beautiful. So you find you, when you're reading about one brother, you find yourself really drawn into his kind of mode of being or into his, his view of life. And when you shift to a different brother, you find yourself drawn to that brother equally strongly. And, um, and I think that really speaks to the kind of capaciousness of Dostoevsky's vision where he, um, can depict all these competing, conflicting visions and voices in a way that is really honest and beautiful. Um, even the voices and the visions that he himself, Dostoevsky, disagrees with, and that's something that uh, you know Dostoevsky is a is a devout Christian who is writing really all in all of his major novels, he's trying to impress upon readers the importance of religious faith in some way or another. And that's something that, uh, that the great atheist writers never even so much as attempt. You'll, you'll never, you'll never read Marx or, or Nietzsche or, or, you know, um, some, some of these great masters of suspicion and come away saying, wow, the way they talk about Christianity is profoundly beautiful and compelling. <laughs> you know, uh, but when you read Dostoevsky, you might come away saying, wow, I wonder if he was actually an atheist because he just made the arguments for atheism so powerfully that you're actually moved by them, you know, <laughs> even though Dostoevsky is trying to say something different. So I think that's that's something that is powerful about the Brothers Karamazov is just the way that it uh, is so honest about the human condition and the way that he's so true to the lives of his characters. Um that you you can be moved in that way. That's beautifully said. I um I find myself weirdly reflecting. There's a chapter in there that gets translated as lacerations, but it's really a kind of a kind of um I don't know grinding um mix of stress and self-pity and the way that it depicts um, kind of pride, masculine pride, and a sense of um, uh, kind of 
community tension is um, is something that just like pops into my head, like in the middle of the golf course or when I'm in the grocery store sometimes. Um, and I find that incredible that Dostoevsky could do, could, can talk about the human condition in a way that goes way that kind of stretches beyond uh, cultural understandings or specific cultural understandings and time. So that's one thing that I love. about. Yeah. The book. By the way, um, there's, uh, you know, these little Hackett editions of kind of classic books. Um, yeah. There's a little Hackett edition of just a few selected chapters from the Brothers Karamazov, like the Grand Inquisitor and some of those. And oh, yeah. it, it would, it's um, this little Hackett edition has an introduction by, um, I think his name is Charles Guillon, like um, G-U-I-G-N-O-N, I think is how his last name is spelled. Anyways, there's a really great little introduction there to Dostoevsky, and he has a section there where he really talks about um, laceration in Dostoevsky's thinking and what laceration means for him as a spiritual condition. So I highly, I, I highly recommend that little Hackett edition just for the introduction by Charles Guillon himself. That's great. You know, I, I actually just. Dis- Discovered Dostoevsky by reading a collection. I volunteered for a year when I was in college with Adra in Bangladesh, and I took along a suitcase of clothes and then a suitcase of nice. books. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was all these like books that I had started to collect as an undergrad, and so it was like great pieces of world literature. This like three pound tone. <laughs> And I would read these in my uh, free time. And uh, I read the Grand Inquisitor chapter. It was just uh, an an- part of this anthology and was just blown away by it. You know, that's pretty funny because I actually read uh, the Brothers Kar- Karamazov, not my first time, but I reread it uh, working for Adra in Kosovo. So maybe it's right. Maybe something about Adra just draws people to great literature. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, we're uh, getting close to ending, and I'm just curious if you, um, you know, if there's uh, any kind of final thoughts on um, uh, film, uh, literature that you have. Well, um, we we didn't get around to talking about the greatest film of all time, which is uh, Mean Girls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, my favorite films of all time include uh, The Godfather is great. I rewatched that recently, but um, but I'm a big fan of the films of Terrence Malick. Oh, yes. Uh, And, you know, his his film, The Tree of Life, is also a major influence on my thinking um, in recent years. And uh, yeah, let's have another conversation sometime and talk about good movies. Great. I'll talk about my favorite two movies of all time, The Holy Mountain and Dead Man by uh, the great director, Jim Jarmusch. I'll do my homework and watch those. All right, man. Great chatting with you as always. Likewise. We'll be in touch. Okay. Bye. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely.